0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Another GOP debate is in the books as the remnants of the establishment do battle to preserve their bid against the firebrands currently dominating the race. And what of those two firebrands? Will Donald Trump successfully paint Ted Cruz as Canadian? Your Huffington Post team is in full effect with post-debate analysis. Meanwhile, as a wise man once said, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end or something. The point is, President Barack Obama delivered his final State of the Union this week, and like all states of the Union, it was mostly pageantry. What's the point of these things anyway? Well, we'll talk to one camera shy member of Congress, our pal Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, about what these addresses are like when you're in the midst of them. Finally, here's a phrase you might have heard if you've been tuning in to the Democratic debates. Reinstall Glass-Steagall. Is this some home repair tip where you take your plastic Steagall out and put in a glass one? Probably. But to be 100% sure, we'll check in with Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Igor Bobick, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Marina Fang, Samantha Lockman, and Lauren Weber. We'll have all of this, plus we'll discuss the Clinton-Sanders fight, introduce the latest Huffington Post podcast, and say a heartfelt goodbye to a dear friend. Here's what happened first. Hey, America. Welcome back to So That Happened. It's our Huffington Post podcast about things that happened. One thing to happen, the GOP debate. Joining me to talk about it with some brief analysis, I have Arthur Delaney Hi, and our friend Lauren Weber. How's it going? It's going. It's going good. Maybe going a little bit better for Ted Cruz after tonight's debate. Uh, It was a pretty solid
2: outing for Cruz, mostly, don't you think? Yeah. He battled with Donald Trump early. Yep. Ted Cruz. And often. I would
3: also phrase that not as a battle. I thought he demolished Donald Trump until we got to the New York question. Yeah, Yeah, no,
2: they traded blows round and round. Haymakers going back and forth. It started with the birtherism. That's
1: right. Ted Cruz has been uh, pilloried by Donald Not pilloried, but Donald Trump has suggested that uh, Ted Cruz is not eligible to be president. He is the king of the birthers after all. Now he's turning that (laughs) attack that he used on Obama inward on Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is quick to jump on it.
2: That, well, moderator Neil Cavuto said, hey, this is out there, Ted Cruz. Can you please clear it up for us? You were born in Canada, uh, and there's questions about your eligibility for office. So Cruz says this is hogwash, which I think is is what most people who are constitutional scholars think. Certainly most Canadians say It doesn't hogwash. say you have to be born in America. It says you have to be a natural-born citizen. So his parents were... U.S. citizens. Right. So, so well, is if by he. pure
1: accident, you're on a plane, your mom gives birth to you, you're supposed to be in America, you're in Canada, you're in Ottawa.
2: And like he said, you know, what if you're- it Sucks to be you, well, yeah, you're Canadian what if, now. Yeah, you're serving in the so military or something. So, uh, and and then he's like, the only thing that changed is, is, you know, I'm more competitive with Donald Trump in the polls.
3: It was the first, it was the first hit. That Cruz did publicly against Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, and, that was huge. That then, was the
2: beginning. Yeah, and it was, it was pretty funny. And then Neil Cavuto was like, Donald Trump, why did you flip-flop on this? Because Donald Trump has, of course, previously held the opposite position.
1: Yeah, Donald Trump made the case that he's only raising these concerns <laughs> this was out of kindness for the Republican Party and for Ted Cruz himself. Donald Trump was... I, I would love to have Ted Cruz along for the ride as my vice president. So
3: much running mate talk.
1: It was but great. What if What if the Democrats bring a lawsuit? Oh, man, that would be terrible for Ted Cruz. <laughs> and there would be so much uncertainty that I can't just I just can't put anyone through that. Least of all you, Ted. Sorry. So
2: Kavuda was like, so why are you flip flopping? Why are you doing this now? And Trump was like, well, you know, it is the poll numbers. Yeah. Basically. He's doing a little bit better. Yeah. And then the audience—that was just
3: great. The audience so great.
2: booed him lustily.
1: Well, he claimed that they were booing the situation, but yes, he was. Trump got booed pretty badly. He got
3: booed a couple times. Anyone in
1: the—if anyone in the room was responsible for the microphone, they're not getting paid. No. No one that boos gets paid. Uh, but then things took a uh, took a took a turn, maybe against Cruz. I think they're going. On Twitter, uh, I may have been premature to declare Cruz necessarily the winner uh, because on Twitter, it seemed that when we got into the subject of New York values, which is an attack that Ted Cruz had levied at Donald Trump. Uh, you know, he espouses New York values. And to be fair, I think that what Ted Cruz was simply trying to say is that n- n- New York City in particular uh, is a hotbed of godless liberalism. And he, and, he ele- yeah, he said I mean, he and basically Donald said Trump Trump that. He really said it
3: gays and all other kinds right, of which is, gay
2: people are all
3: over and and the media. That's
1: what's that's what's so funny is that is that it usually codes
2: as a dog whistle for Jewish.
3: Yes, I was going to say. I was expecting that. Many, uh-huh. many
2: people on Twitter were like, he means Jews. And
1: Cruz was like, I don't mean Jews. I mean gays. <laughs> and the media. And the media. And money. Yes. And and I, I couldn't help saying it. It's like, you know what is a New York institution Goldman Sachs, the institution yes.
3: that financed your Senate run, as it turns out. That was out. an awkward—that was an awkward So I, I thought uh, coincidence.
2: Donald Trump's response to this assault on New York values absolutely breathed fire, and I was impressed. It was—
3: You know what? It was the best invocation of 9-11 in the debates that I've seen so far. I can't believe we're praising 9-11 invocations.
4: We're
1: we're going with the level of the room. This this was
3: actually a decent one. I mean, this was not a Hillary Clinton odd. Why support Wall Street, 9-11?
2: He did it better than Rudy Giuliani ever did. Uh, It was visceral. He talked about the smell of dead bodies.
3: And the rebuilding.
2: And Cruz was so cowed that he had to just applaud him. That's how... Well, Badly. There, was no he was beaten. there was no coming he back stood there was no coming back there and applauded Donald Trump. Yeah, it was. Uh, yep. Yep.
1: Yep. Donald Trump got the better of him on that case. Uh, but here's the thing. I think probably at a lot of Republican circles, the New York, the New York values attack still works. I think that they may uh, applaud Donald Trump for remembering 9-11. Uh, but I think that the essential part of the attack, which is that Donald Trump used to hold a lot of liberal values. He still holds a lot of values that aren't necessarily conservative. I still think that attack has currency. I still don't think it's gone away. But we will see. Right across the border, we have New Jersey and we have yes, New Jersey's do. governor. Chris Christie Christie is kind of locked in a battle. Well, he was locked in a battle, uh, uh, about a month ago to keep himself back up in to the main stage fray and not on the undercard debate. Uh, he has been performing quite well in New Hampshire, uh, relatively speaking. Yes. Um, he's earned some key endorsements in New Hampshire. People say he's performing well in New Hampshire. He has the highest approval rating among New Hampshire voters of any GOP candidate. At least the, 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 the I mean, the margin between approval and disapproval, mm-hmm. Christie has it. So tonight, built on that.
3: I thought he just blew uh, his main competitors, which are Kasich and Jeb Bush, out of the
2: water. And, and I Rubio think too. I think
3: he really, honestly hits and blows on Rubio, who's the kind of the next level competitor.
2: And he did it by just being regular Chris Christie. It's the same performance,
3: exactly. Some
2: of the same exact turns of phrase that he's turned in on each debate. If you can imagine the situation right now in the Republican field, as far as the primary goes, you have two firebrands
1: at the top, Cruz and Trump, and the establishment candidates are in a pile-up, like almost a traffic uncertainty.
3: Oh, and, and you went for it. went for it, Who better, to unwind,
1: it, <laughs> who better to unwind a, 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 tr- a traffic clog-up in the establishment lane than Chris Christie, right?
3: I mean, yeah, you got to go with uh, the bombastic guy that's able to kind of cut through the nonsense. I mean, maybe he'll be the answer to the establishment woes. He really, I thought he made Marco Rubio look silly when he went after him a couple times.
1: Yeah, there was it, that one time he said, sorry, Marco, but you blew it. So in several really debates, it's
2: Christy has been like this is my moment to barge in and yell at everybody f- for not It's a shtick. And- yes. You're boring. But th- this was th- this time I thought he landed it. It beca- worked. Because uh Cruz and Rubio were asked a question about entitlements and they just talked about taxes and it was like really dry and boring.
3: And no one was paying attention and until
2: Christy seized the opportunity to like bust through a brick wall like the Kool-Aid pitcher man. <laughs>
3: But a, you that got, is a great ad throwback there, Arthur. I got to
2: interrupt this Senate floor debate to actually answer the question. And Marco Rubio was like, wait a minute. And Chrissy said, you blew it. <laughs> <laughs> Me talk now. <laughs> <laughs> and he is the only oh candidate gosh. who wants to talk about it because he's the only one who's just totally forthright. I will protect Social Security by cutting benefits. So is the only one with the guts to do it.
3: Look, you know what? I got to say, I think this goes back to an authenticity issue. Um, I think Chris Christie kind of breathes that authenticity that voters today really are looking for. And maybe this is his moment to kind of show that and go forward on it.
1: All right. Well, perhaps he has seized the moment in the establishment lane. He's got a ways to go before he gets to the rivals at the top. But New Hampshire could change a lot of situations. Arthur, Lauren, thank you for being with us. We'll, be back. we'll be back. Thank you. Thank in- you. We'll be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail, you guys. Okay, we are back, and we're back now with Igor Bobic. Hey. And Marina Fang. Hello. And we're going to talk about tonight's sad sack. And Aww. once again, it's someone it's that Marina likes to pick on a <laughs> lot. I want to right. say, she's come, she's come busting through walls to pick on this dude. She
5: likes to bully him.
1: She yep. really likes to bully him. She's mean. Yeah. She's mean. Spoiler, I'm Donald Trump. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush tonight disappeared for most of the debate. When he came back, it wasn't very special.
5: Come on, Jeb.
1: What is wrong with this guy? Poor Jeb.
5: Know. It's taking him so long to get into this race, and he just cannot do it. He can't do it. He doesn't have it in him. I, I don't understand why he can't just. Just spout out a, a good retort to this guy. He's just tongue-tied. He gets tongue-tied.
1: Yeah, he stutters a lot. What is it about Jeb Bush when he's tongue-tied and stutters that makes you think, nah? But when his brother was president, he was like all over the map as far as being tongue-tied. I don't, and there was like, I'll have a beer with him. I'll definitely <laughs> have a beer with him. Even though he doesn't drink, I'll have a beer with him. I'll have two beers.
5: Look, uh, George had his moments, I feel like. He did. Uh, he yeah. did. He really did. He knew when when the time came, he knew how to really put on a show. I'm talking about, you know, nine eleven. He could just, you know, he could rally people.
1: Yeah, this guy doesn't have it in he him. He just doesn't right. have it in him.
5: And, you know, not that Jeb wouldn't be a bad president or wouldn't be a good president. I, I feel like he could have, he does have executive experience, but, like, he just doesn't have it to pull through this Trump mania yeah. right now. He
6: just looks like he's trying too hard. Like, every time he's up there, it's like he really has to think about what he has to say, whereas George just made... <laughs> politicking
1: look very natural i think at this point though i mean we're not that mean i think that i'm <laughs> I think it's i'm starting to feel like i'm just dying inside watching him like tonight <laughs> tonight jeb bush jumped right on donald trump for his proposal to ban muslims entering. well the, tried to jump try yeah okay i'm being i'm being <laughs> You're really being generous. generous i'm super <laughs> generous uh, and he starts by bringing up the kurds our allies in the war against isis and i was like Good start, bro. And then I started, I started like secretly hoping he'd pull through this. I was just like, mention the translators that have worked with soldiers that were trying to get into the country to save their lives. Come on, Jeb, you can do it. And he couldn't quite get there. And then at the end, (laughs) instead of saying, Donald Trump, you're wrong, your ideas are wrong. You're a menace to this country and everything it stands for. Instead, he was like, come on, Aww. Donald, would you consider <laughs> <on>. please? Please. <laughs> maybe changing your views? Please. Oh, it was, don't. It was cringing.
5: <laughs> don't, Donald. Please, don't. I
1: was like, why are you begging the it man? Was,
5: it was like a bully in a schoolyard, and Jeb just cowered.
1: Please stop hitting me. Please. Yeah. Your dad was a war hero, man. <laughs> your dad ran the CIA. He flew
5: jets. That's, that's what gets me. His dad was at home watching this on Fox. And and just just you know hanging his head in shame. And Jeb knows that. That's why he's been he's been going off about his father on the campaign trail and how yeah. you know he would he would die if his he father does not He loves his dad. His off. dad.
6: He said he's like the best man ever or something like that. Oh
1: boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> it was really 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 kind of crazy. I, I thought tonight um, that it was a real clear issue, uh, a clear clear advantage. To be the first guy to talk tonight, because I noticed as we wound through the first uh, seven questions, Donald Trump went last. Mm. Right. Uh, Ted Cruz got out. But all, funny enough. Yeah. yeah even funn-
6: even Ben Carson got in before Trump. Yes, it was, which crazy. was crazy. Yeah.
1: But uh, but I think within four rounds, all the really good zingers about the State of the Union, mm. uh, about Hillary Clinton had, uh, and the soldiers so had the all sailors. been sailors. The sailors yeah. had right. all been used up, and Donald Trump was very subdued at the beginning. He sort of rose to the occasion. Uh, who do you think, if if we're calling Bush the loser, mm-hmm. uh, who do you think who do you think prevailed tonight? Who was the best?
5: The the huge winner. I mean, are you kidding me? You're gonna go with Trump? Now. Oh, I'm going yeah. with really. Trump. I'm going with because
1: we were saying we were saying that he did falter a little bit uh, with the New York values. Yeah. Qu- hey, that, sorry, sorry. We're saying that Trump did succeed a little bit right. with the New York values question. Right. But what else? What else do you think he did that was successful tonight?
5: I, I just think in, in general, if you look at it as a whole. Everybody had really good moments, making kind of the whole thing a wash. And if it's a wash for everybody, it's a gain for Trump. Nobody had a kind of a breakout standout moment. Cruz and Rubio went at it. Yeah, uh, you know, Christie had his moment. It, it kind of felt like every other previous debate up to this point. It, we're just kind of trotting along until a <laughs> Trump nomination. Man, it's it's happening.
1: Uh, Marina, what do you think? I mostly agree with
6: Igor, but I think Cruz was much more dominant here than we've seen him before. Um, especially in his exchanges with Rubio and also with Trump. I mean that that the the whole Canada question. He totally owned that question, yeah, he which, did. I mean, he just threw that
1: way back in his face. I do, I do. I hate to admit this. <laughs> I hate to admit this, but I sort of caught a sense that like Trump had picked up a little bit more nuance. You talked about how mm-hmm. how like descriptive mm-hmm. his nine eleven mm-hmm. answer was. I think it was interesting that his first response uh about uh Syrian immigrants was very subdued. Uh it was it wasn't there were no pointed barbs at anyone mm-hmm. on the stage at first. He didn't lead with any pointed barbs at anyone on the stage, didn't call anyone say anyone he had a fat face or <laughs> were dumb at their jobs. Right. Well, there, there even, was no women on stage. Did, yeah, right. Didn't <laughs> yeah, thank you. There, <laughs> didn't even throw didn't even throw a grenade right, initially at Obama or Clinton. I thought that there were, like, I I feel like he's getting some post moves, you know? it's
5: it's You know, it's funny. It's almost like he's very shrewd and calculating in some ways. And it wouldn't be hard seeing him swing more moderate in the general election. It's almost, you get kind of a sense, like, he knows what the hell he's talking about, what, what he's doing. And he's, you know, the, the Muslim band, for example, I don't think he just did that out of random. I think it was a very shrewd political yeah. move to, uh, you know, ramp up this frenzy in, in favor of him.
6: Yeah, I so, mean, he knows who his audience is. Yeah.
5: I suppose in a way
1: it's a it's a test of maybe a theory that if you get everyone hot and bothered and jumping off now maybe you can then start to dial it down a little bit you know the old idea that if you uh if you don't uh if you don't uh, uh, hit the high notes right away, you're not going to find the range.
5: Yeah, he's uh, he's going severe conservative, and then he's going to etch a sketch it back.
1: Yes, and, and I was about to say
5: that. Did I take it way too back there? I, I don't know. It's yeah.
1: not really a move that worked for anybody. No, it's not. Yeah, you're <laughs> yeah. right. You're a fair point. All right. Well, uh, Donald Trump may be showing a little bit, uh, a little bit more surprising a political skill set than we've seen prior. Uh, Cruz a little bit more. On top of things, cruising Jeb Bush, maybe <laughs> some might should... say. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you for that. I won't have the worst pun in this show. In that th- th- <laughs> th- thanks for that. I've got like my about pleasure, a, Jason. I've got about a minute before we put that to bed. <laughs> but um, but and, and Jeb Bush today, uh, GOP people uh, at least were saying maybe you should look for the exit.
5: Maybe you mm. should look for the exit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. I- I, I fully agree. I yeah. hope I hope there's some more debates we get to watch together, guys. There is. There's <laughs> one more before the Iowa Caucus.
1: Okay, uh, thanks guys. Igor Bobic, Marina Fang. We will be right back. <laughs> We are back, and we're switching it up again on the phone because he's uh, he's currently negotiating the release of soldiers in Iran. Zach Carter. That is not true, but which you you, you did it, man. Take credit. You did it. You did it.
7: I, I, although apparently that that job was like not actually that hard because it happened really quickly, so maybe I do wish I could take credit for that.
1: yeah, I mean I was gonna
7: involves hostage negotiation. I don't want to be anywhere near that shit that that's hard and stressful and I don't want to, I don't want that responsibility.
1: here's our podcast con- comprehensive coverage of that incident. It's over. okay, so <laughs> I'm moving on <laughs> there we go <laughs> we we will that'll be the headline. also you've heard her voice before and you heard it just now. Our senior Canadian correspondent Samantha Lockman. Hey everyone. What's up?
8: Things are good. Getting excited. I'm going to Charleston this weekend.
1: You have to eat at Poogan's Porch.
8: I've heard there's so many different restaurants I know, I know, to I, know eat I, at. I know. But Shrimp and grits and biscuits are my favorite foods. So yeah, it dude, seems like I'm going to the right place. Going to the Mecca of the Mecca. Shrimp and grits and biscuits. And the Democratic debate is on Sunday there. So hot bed of 2016. Wait, they're and
1: both in Charleston? They're both in Charleston. God, that is some good foresight. Yes. some well-fed reporters down there. They're so put upon, campaign reporters. This one, this one I don't, I'm not upset about going to. For just the price of a cup of coffee, you could buy a campaign reporter part of a cup of coffee. Do that today. So the uh, Democratic debate is going to be this weekend because the DNC doesn't want to watching it.
8: <laughs> <laughs> the Sunday before MLK Day. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's on vacation.
1: Uh, yeah, except for me. I got to work. Not, um, not us, but everyone else. Uh, but uh, the the most recent thing that's happened in the Democratic debate is that uh, health care, for some reason, has become a thing that the Democrats are fighting over.
8: It's It's... It's interesting because the Clinton campaign apparently sees an advantage to attacking Bernie Sanders for wanting single-payer universal health care.
7: This doesn't make any sense. I mean, I'd like, this is, it's part and parcel of the attack that, that Clinton made last week against Sanders' banking platform in which she was like, hey, all you progressives who think, like, break up a big bank is a good idea. You're all idiots. Actually, we just need to regulate shadow banking. And, like, there's a lot, a lot of good stuff in Clinton's, shadow banking plan, and I think there's a lot of good stuff in her health care plan, but I just don't see how she makes inroads with progressive voters by saying that things that progressives have cared about, especially health care, for decades like, are, are bad ideas. I mean, it's, it's not like she's running in the general election with, like, Donald Trump voters who've never thought about health care reform before.
8: And it's something that she wanted for a long time, too. So, and it just opens her up to so many obvious attacks like her saying like since and she said in 2008 like since when did democrats attack each other over wanting universal health care
1: yeah one of the sticking points has been that she's she's talked about how single payer would require uh, a, a rise on taxes which i don't think anyone who's ever talked about doing single payer has, has I, I think it's pretty much occurred to them yeah that's how it works we understand know. You invest this money, you get this return on, on the investment. Uh, but it's unusual for Democrats to be, uh, like, fear-mongering over the potential raise in taxes. And
8: Chelsea Clinton also said in Iowa that it would involve stripping everyone of their health insurance, as in they wouldn't then get health insurance but, under that system.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't have this great Aetna plan you don't understand half the time. <laughs> Sorry, America. Yeah, that's another thing that I don't quite understand It's like— Chelsea Clinton to me is like kind of this like phantasmal presence in American life, where she sort of like flits in and out of like being and not being. And for her to be the dispatched surrogate to Iowa to specifically attack liberals for liking universal health care is, I I don't have like a metaphor for it. It's weird.
8: And they they I mean their new line of attack is that Sanders' campaign hasn't yet released the details of his single-payer plan and is now saying that they might not or will not release that plan before Iowa. And I think that's fair to say, like, if you want to support this thing, you have to tell us how you're paying for it. Yes. That's fine. But don't attack the whole concept altogether. Like, that seems like a bad idea and it's going to make people pissed off at you.
1: Right. Uh, But, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't understand. I think that maybe that she's feeling the pressure for the fact that the early states polling is, is turning a little bit in Sanders' favor, but over the broad swath of the primaries that will come, uh, I think she's still heavily favored to win the nomination and lock it up quickly.
7: I, I think this represents, I I, I think, actually, like something that's a deeper problem for the Clinton campaign other than just making a dumb move on, on health care. Um, I, I, I think it represents that she hasn't really figured out how to exercise the demons of the 2008 campaign, um, which is that the Clinton Clinton team's response to an attack or to trouble is to attack, to counterattack. And here, they're looking at the polling numbers going south, and there are some polls now where Clinton was up, I think, about 15 points a month ago, and now there are many polls that show Sanders up in Iowa uh, and others that show him him closing uh, and, and him doing even better in New Hampshire. So I, I don't think she can actually rest on her laurels the way I did a week ago before that polling data came in. Because if Sanders wins Iowa and New Hampshire, this race is going to be is going to be extended at the very least, and be a lot closer than people thought. So I, I do think I do think you have to attack, and I do think the smart move is to go negative. But she doesn't seem to know how to go negative. I mean, it it getting getting like someone from the Clinton family to say that that single payer is a bad idea. Uh, in Iowa, where the voters have been told for, like, 20 years that single payer is the only thing that can really save us from a bad health care system, that's that's just not smart politics. I mean, it's not like there aren't ways to attack Bernie Sanders where he's vulnerable. I mean, in, in the first debate, her most powerful and effective line against Sanders involved gun policy and gun violence. But Sanders is never going to stop being vulnerable there because it's just not an area or he has a record that is as strong as Hillary Clinton's on on gun violence and on gun control.
1: And Sanders is also, uh, w- maybe not Sanders, but his campaign sure gets queasy whenever the topic runs round to national security or foreign policy. Yeah, uh, and that's supposed to be her ostensible strength at this juncture. Uh, so it's it's weird, you know. Joe Biden like threw some solid shade on this whole on this whole kerfuff, and he used words that really sting. Uh, when he said that Bernie Sanders had credibility and authenticity at on the issue of income inequality and that Hillary Clinton was essentially coming to it as a beginner.
8: That was a problem.
1: Yeah. I was like, shade. <laughs> the man really wants to run for president.
8: Um And that's something Sanders could use in an ad if they wanted to, if they wanted to get really nasty, for sure. They might want to get nasty. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we've already gotten to that point.
7: Let's also point out, I mean, I think we've been hitting on the Clinton campaign a lot here. I I think they deserve it. But let's also point out that the Sanders campaign promised they were going to run a positive campaign. They were going to, Sanders went on CNN and said over and over, you know, I've never run a negative campaign ad in my life. I mean, the reality is you don't win tough, political battles without running negative stuff. But he still went out and promised everybody that he wasn't going to do that. And if you listen to his Wall Street speech, for instance, I mean, he basically is subtweeting her the whole time. Sure, the lobbyists spend lots of money, and they pay lots of money to have people come give speeches. Wink, wink. Uh, there's a clear dig at Clinton you know, getting a lot of money for, for talking on Wall Street. Uh, so, you know, that, that's not quite the same as, like, Misleading people about the implications of somebody else's plan, but it's clearly a negative attack.
1: Can I tell you why? Can I tell you why the whole like, anytime a p- politician promises, I'm not going to run negative ads, I'm not going to be negative in this, is that it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like, the minute you simply object to the other person's policy preferences it doesn't matter how polite you're being
8: it's inherently it's inherently negative. negative and
1: like the dumb media would be like oh he promised to not go negative but he doesn't totally agree with her policies what's that about it's like well i mean it's a competition he <laughs> shouldn't have gone about saying that in the first place like i feel like the people who are supporting
8: him i mean they're excited about him but they also kind of want him to point out like here's why i'm
1: different from Clinton. yeah exactly i mean i I'd... which only
7: underscores why chelsea clinton is like not a good surrogate for the campaign, <laughs> right? like that's the one area where they're vulnerable like oh it's the clinton dynasty um you know or, or one of, i mean i think it's where they they're most vulnerable uh, people who have been in politics for you know 20 30 years typically don't get elected to the presidency so pointing out hey th- remember when she was 12 and she was in the white house well now she's an adult and she's saying things that are not true about bernie sanders health care plan
8: and speaking of healthcare, something I wanted to bring up is um, there's been a couple of pretty good stories about how Sanders just doesn't really talk about reproductive justice on the campaign trail ever. And to me, it seems almost a little bit strange because it fits in so well with his discussions of universal healthcare. Like, abortion is healthcare, and economic inequality, like reproductive justice, like is totally tied in with that. If you're forced to carry through a pregnancy that you don't want, like that hurts your 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 family, your ability to to care for your children that you already have. So um, it's interesting to me because Hillary Clinton actually did something really great this week that wasn't as noticed as it should have been, which is that she talked about the Hyde Amendment on the campaign trail and said it's unfair to punish poor women, low income patients who are on Medicaid, who can't get abortions in a lot of states because the Hyde Amendment is this federal thing that prevents any federal funding from going towards abortion. So it was great. Hillary Clinton talked about that. And she should this is the kind of thing that she should be doing more of. It's talking about an issue that Sanders isn't really talking about that much. And that one is one that actually can generate excitement for her campaign and like totally ties in with her. You know, this is a historic candidacy kind of thing.
1: I think that of all the candidates that are running running right now, uh, what Hillary Clinton potentially has to say about early childhood education. That's good, too. Yeah, it's really good because she's actually spent a lot of time studying it. And she knows it. Well, and she knows it. And she actually can present the cases like if we get to children at this young age and start helping them, it will literally help them manufacture gray matter. They will literally be a smarter generation of people. And that will have enormous concomitant benefits to society and the economy. And she's got that all really well thought out. And if she wants to talk about what we should spend tax money on, Mm -hmm. she can say, we have Obamacare. It's working. I want to play out the string and I want to let states innovate uh, before we start raising taxes to facilitate Canadian healthcare. <laughs> I would rather spend the tax money on early childhood education. And here's what I here's why I think that would benefit us greatly down the line. That to me is a sensible way of going about this. Not all you people who have supported universal healthcare for so wrong at my at my urging yeah. are idiots. Yes. Talk to my daughter about it. <laughs> She's a rich journalist from MSNBC.
7: I mean, but but that, that's the basic problem, right? It's not that the Hillary Clinton campaign has no ideas, right? They have a lot of great ideas, and they're really sharp on policies. The thing that the thing that's like I think concerning about this because you know unless she loses both Iowa and New Hampshire she's got the nomination locked up I think I mean I think it's very very difficult to see Bernie Sanders winning uh, if he if he doesn't win Iowa if he just wins New Hampshire because the expectations now are that he will win New Hampshire this type of campaigning suggests that she is still running a bad campaign and the you know she was the the undisputed. Front runner. i mean they were already calling the 2008 raid the coronation before this random guy from illinois jumped up and uh, and started like kicking your ass everywhere so I, I i it just seems like something is going on within that campaign where they don't know how to talk about their strength and instead they want to talk about their opponent's strength and then try to mislead people on policies which democratic voters are very deeply familiar with
4: mm-hmm.
1: yeah I would that that's <laughs> good assessment, boom, boom, done and dusted, <laughs> all right, Samantha, thank you for joining us, yeah, I'll be back again soon. It was fun, Zach, you get well and uh bring our bring our boys home Rita,
7: read all of Sam's, re, read all of Sam's stories on there. she's written three or four of the last week they're really good,
1: oh thanks, so well, I'm going to Charleston, so
8: there'll be more coming too.
1: Everybody, we're back. We're back with Arthur Delaney. Hi. And joining us over the phone is our friend and confidant, Congressman Reed Ribble of Wisconsin.
9: Yay. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing okay. It's cold in Washington this morning. It
1: is really, really cold in Washington right now. Maybe, maybe that's a metaphor. I don't know. But uh, we wanted to talk about uh, the State of the Union Address, which happened this week.
2: Uh, you were there arthur you 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 were very curious about one thing yeah, uh Congressman Ribble, where were you sitting? I did not see your face
9: No, you didn't see my face i'm one of those guys who uh, when I first came to Congress, I actually tried to find out where I could sit where I would never be seen um, <laughs> and so i have I have a tendency during those very public events to try to sit in places where I know for sure the camera will not not get a, get me um i've got i 've got a i 've got a pure face for radio. And uh, <laughs> I would, I would prefer not to be, not
2: to be on the congressman. Let the record show that the congressman is is too modest.
9: Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll let that record show.
1: It is, this, it is actually safe to stand between a co- camera and Congressman Reed Ribble in Washington D.C. Remember it, it
9: absolutely is.
1: <laughs> well, um, so I'll just confess to my dirty little secret: is that I did not watch the State of the Union. It's a really it dirty, dirty scene. Yes, I didn't. I did not watch it. So what happened, guys?
2: <laughs> Let's uh, Congressman Ribble fill us in. <laughs> fill J- tell Jason what
9: uh, the president said. I
2: know what ha- I know some somewhat what happened, but
9: the president gave the typical speech. He started out being very optimistic. He closed saying, "Work together," and in the middle, he talked about his accomplishments. And uh, this year was a little bit different because he didn't really ask for much. Normally he's got this kind of list of things and scolds the Congress, you got to do this and this and this. But he didn't do that last night. So it was a little bit unusual, but um, he took credit for everything that, that's that been going good in the country, and um, which that's what presidents do.
1: Let me ask, because uh, I've read a lot of political science about State of the Union addresses and what they accomplish. And I want to get a read on someone who's in the room during these things. What, what a lot of political scientists say about State of the Union addresses, they, they go back to comments made and studies done and uh, the Reagan biography figures in heavily, um, that presidents, when they give these speeches, they actually don't go into it thinking that they're going to move a, a lot of public opinion behind some dramatic new thing that they stick to if they if they if they enunciate if they enunciate a lot of policy positions, they try to stick to things that are already pretty broadly popular. And if they mention things that aren't necessarily broadly popular, they're mentioned in such a way as just a signal to everyone in the room, the opposition party, his own party, uh, the areas in which the president would like to negotiate on policy. Would you say that's about right? Uh,
9: I, I would. I would say it's about right. And I would also say that I'm not sure that the modern era State of the Union address accomplishes what the founders originally had intended. You know, for about 100 plus years, 140 years really, the State of the Union address was delivered via via mail or or delivery, they just sent it over to members of Congress and you can read it. And in some respects, I think that that might be a, a, something to, worthy of consideration going forward.
2: Well, they did that too. I mean, the White House published the full text of, of the speech on medium.com way before it began.
9: They, they want to get it out. Um, the all the pomp and circumstance and the introduction of guests and what have you the whole thing just seems a little bit um i don't i don't know um uh, show offy to me i'm not i'm not completely embedded in in the tradition of it to be honest with you
2: i think i think it's definitely fair to call it a little show offy so so president obama didn't have a list of demands uh, acknowledging essentially that there's you know there's no must pass legislation and we have divided government but he did say Paul Ryan's my buddy. I I like what Paul Ryan does on poverty. Do you think that that sets the stage for cooperation on certain things?
9: I certainly think that it's in the president's best interest, it's in the country's best interest, and it's in the speaker's best interest for us to do things where we can agree. However, I'm I'm a realist in understanding we're going into election year politics and each side. The Democrats are going to try to posture themselves as the ones that want to get things done, and Republicans are going to try to posture them as the ones that want to get things done. And so there, there wasn't a lot of uh, back-slapping going on for the most part. However, I think if you look at the list of accomplishments in this Congress uh, in, you know, in uh, 2015, it hasn't been bad for the president. He got the Trade promotion Authority done, which is something that he wanted to do. We got a rewrite of the of, uh, education policy in the country uh, No Child Left Behind hadn't been reauthored for quite a while that got done we got a five-year transportation uh, yeah. bill yeah. through the Congress and funded uh, that hadn't been done in decades and so uh, once the roadblock got moved in the Senate things actually began to move again and there was a fairly significant list of accomplishments last year that I think both the president and the Congress were feeling pretty good
2: about. So, President Obama and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who delivered the Republican response, they, they touched on a similar theme. President Obama talked about you know frustration in American daily life and the voices urging us to fall back into tribes to scapegoat fellow citizens who don't look like us or pray like us or share the same background. And, and here's what Nikki Haley said: sh- that uh, we live in a time. Of threats like few others in recent memory. During anxious times, it can be tempting to follow the siren call of the angriest voices. We must resist that temptation. So these are clearly references to
9: Donald Trump supporters.
1: Oh, that's what it was a reference to. <laughs> oh, I was wondering.
9: Maybe both Trump and Senator Cruz, because they both have taken very strong anti immigration positions and postures. Um, so, and and there's a kind of a nativist nature to the posture that they've taken. I think that Governor Haley uh, rightfully spoke out and said, "Listen, we got to be careful about that." Most immigrants that come here are coming here for a better future, which means they want to work.
2: Now, President Obama and Nikki Haley, in, in these addresses, are, are establishment politicians, and Cruz and Trump supporters are happy if it's, if the establishment's. Angry at them, so does is this helpful in achieving the, the you know the more noble uh, de- democratic aspirations that 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 Haley and Obama are talking about or or does this just perpetuate the situation we've already got
9: yeah you know i I think the the word establishment has become a pejorative, and so let's 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 step back and say traditional conservatives and traditional progressives are liberal. Um, rather than establishment, so that we get out of the pejorative nature of it. I do believe that any time any politician, whether a member of Congress, a governor, a, listen, a city alderman or president of the United States, when they call for civility, you're going to get me standing up and agreeing with that. Mm-hmm. When we, How in the world could I? If you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican, but I want to convince you to maybe consider a Republican candidate for any office. If I start the conversation by calling you a moron or a loser, how likely are you to open your door and listen to my argument? You're you're not likely at all, because I've now put this huge wall between us.
2: Unless I hate myself. Yeah, maybe I'm weeping.
1: Maybe I'm weeping and sad, and I'm like, okay, whatever.
9: Uh, It doesn't work. And I think what Governor Haley was trying to articulate, maybe what we ought to do is take the walls down so communication can go up. And if we do that... Then you might have the opportunity of having a legitimate grown up conversation uh, with somebody who you're trying to persuade to your point of view.
1: I want to, one last question. I want to just sort of like get your reform minded uh, thoughts working on this. But I've been watching rebuttals to State of the Unions for quite some time. Uh, And I've always felt like the rebuttler is always a bit at a loss. They can't match the pomp and pageantry of the actual State of the Union. And really, it's not technically a rebuttal. It's just another set of prepared remarks thrown at a first set of prepared remarks. Is there perhaps a better way of doing it? Um, because what I think of as a rebuttal would be sort of, this is what the president said, and here are my point-by-point responses. Uh, it could be mailed. Like you said, it could be delivered the next day. The media right now is kind of in this mode where we cover anything anyone says ever. And if it's a vaunted rebuttal to the State of the Union, we would probably be cool waiting a day for it to be put on YouTube or televised. Uh, and then I think we could get into, like, real arguments.
9: Yeah, I I, I actually think that um, had Governor Haley asked my advice about doing a rebuttal, I would have advised her not to, even though the, the the bar has been set really, really low in recent years. Uh, generally mm. speaking, it's something that you can just mess up your career with. Uh, I think she did a pretty good job, from what I've heard, uh, in, in articulating conservative values and principles. And so I, I give her credit, but I didn't see it myself. And so, um, but in this modern era of uh, the ability to live tweet and to post things almost immediate, immediately, the American people are getting flooded with responses to what the president says almost in real time. And so it may be that there's a better way of giving a response than this kind of formalized sit in a room and, and, and say what you will, um, but because it's not really a response. Uh, they're written in advance of what the president's comments were, so it's not responding to what the president
2: It sounds like you're saying having to do that, it's actually kind of a trap just, it can be,
9: it can be, and it's it's trapped both Republicans and Democrats in the past, yeah,
2: yeah. I this is the
9: famous glass of water, yeah, yeah, from yeah, from Marco Rubio, and he's still still paying a little bit of a penalty for it.
1: Congressman Ribble, from the heart, I hope you never have to give a rebuttal to a
9: state of the union uh, well, thank you. You guys like me well enough to to wish that good luck on
1: <laughs> absolutely, good luck, sir. all right, thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here to thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. We're back. And now we're going to do something a little bit different. (laughs) Joining us right now, Zach Carter, still here on the phone. Hello! Still sick. (laughs) Still locked in, immune system locked in, deadly battle with whatever whatever Ebola he has. (laughs) Too soon. And he's bleeding out internally, but still on the
10: phone with us. Too soon and too much. (laughs)
1: not gonna miss the podcast that's my brand (laughs) (laughs) too soon too much they're gonna put that on my gravestone (laughs) along with hey i didn't know him but i'm sorry (laughs) he's dead (laughs) uh joining us also is sam stein hello who is the what is your
10: title senior politics editor
1: senior politics
10: editor so formal
1: yeah, it's very formal. <laughs> so we're here today because uh, the Huffington Post is launching a brand new short form. Well, not short form. I mean, like, uh, short in terms of episodes, but long form in terms of the actual discussion. Sure. Podcast. Uh, a limited series podcast. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, cool, cool. I knew I'd hit on the right definition eventually. Um, <laughs> uh, a cavalcade of whimsy. No, now i gone too far again. Um,
10: no, that's, that's better, yes. Uh <laughs>
1: That chronicles the lives of politicians who have reached for the brass ring with all of their heart and muscle and mind and money and fallen terribly short and collapsed in a (laughs) heap.
10: That's good. That's true. It's called Candidate Confessional. That is correct.
1: Tell us about this Project. Well, first
10: of all, thank you so much for having me on, Jason. Good, yeah. I would have fired you had you not had me on. I
1: know, I know.
10: I'm, <laughs> I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> Fair enough. So, we're, we're launching this podcast, as you mentioned, Candidate Confessional. And the premise is to interview politicians who've sought election and lost. And the reason that we did this is because we just figured that the people who lose are the more candid people. Because they've already lost. They have less to lose. So uh, we wanted to know what life was actually like on a campaign trail. Like the daily humiliations that you go through, the stress it puts on your family, what it's like to have to, like, go into a room of four people and act like you're happy to be there in the dead of winter in Iowa. Or to beg people for money that you don't really want to have to beg for money. And Sounds like Rand Paul's going to be on season two. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the beauty of the podcast is we feel like there's a lot. There, there's a big pool from where we can draw uh, people to interview. Uh, and right now we have, like, you know, we have, like, a dozen interviews done and a bunch edited. And we got some good stuff. I mean, Howard Dean is our first episode. He talks about his 2004 campaign. Michelle Bachman's our next episode. Uh, and then we talked to this guy, for instance. Is, he's known as Boo Ben Kanop. You know Boo Ben Kanop? Boo Ben
1: Kanop is kind
10: of, like... He's sort of honest, inf- internet famous. Yeah,
1: honestly, he's... He... Yeah. He's a sort of celebrity in this office. Yeah. So, this, not.
10: so for the viewers, I guess I should explain. He's a guy. He ran for mayor of Toledo, Ohio. And he did a campaign stop in front of his mom's house outside or on the block where his mom grew up. And this guy is sitting on a nearby porch and just mercilessly booze him throughout his entire speech. And it's all caught on YouTube. And it's played and replayed like, you know, 900,000 times or something. It's terrible. And his whole career is completely, uh, submarine by this total asshole on a stoop. And I was just thinking like, wow, what is that actually like to have to go through that humiliation? I mean, it became a South Park episode. Uh, so, you know, we we wanted to hear that story and I, and, and, you know, it, 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 these people really opened up when you gave them the opportunity. I think it was cathartic for them.
1: Um, Michelle Bachman, I just want to just say, I remember when, uh, she popped over the office. Oh, do you remember that? She, she's a gamer. She's she's up totally for anything and wants to talk about stuff uh, uh, to 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 her great credit and uh, did a good episode. Yeah, definitely. Really, fa- really fantastic episode with you guys. All right. So, people, look for that on your iTunes and definitely. your Stitcher and
10: your – on the Huffington Post. Also, before I go, I have to give a huge thanks to Christine Canetta for putting it all together. She was masterful. Unbelievable. Yeah. What yeah. a wizard.
1: We're uh, yeah, it's it's something we're all really excited about. It's very, uh, it's 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 really uh, very deeply humane and good. Thank you. Uh, and I think that it's gonna, I, I think, provided people, maybe, of a nice jolt out of the often rancorous world of politics, yeah, into a place where actual living, breathing people live and 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 hurt. Yeah, because of things. Exactly. Like this. Exactly. So that's good. It's good. It's. Uh, I think. I think it's good to get in touch with a little bit of that. All right, Sam Stein. Thank you very much. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Jason. Zach Carter. Go uh, drink some. Get I'm gonna sleep. All right. We will be right back. And we are back, and I'm now joined by two totally different people, I think, than we were before. Uh, sitting in the studio with me is Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. Welcome, Alexis.
11: woo Thanks for having me.
1: And on the phone today, because he's sick or something, Zach Carter. Hi,
7: guys. Sorry I'm a little congested, but I'm excited to talk to you today.
1: Okay, so... I want to just start quickly with a question about what Americans could be spending their money on right now. What would be the better bang for their buck? So, Alexis, if the average American taxpayer had the choice between buying a Powerball ticket and publicly financing a sports stadium, which would
4: you have them do?
11: (laughs) Well— Sports stadiums generally don't turn out very well for the communities that they're built in. They actually cost a bunch of money and they don't really do much for the local economy except at the very beginning and like people are displaced. So I actually think that my answer would be Powerball because I I actually took this discrete math class in college and our professor did this whole exercise to prove to us that when the jackpot was big enough, the expected value is positive, so it's like 50 cents or something or whatever. I mean, it depends right on what the jackpot is. So I would go with Powerball.
1: So basically
11: (laughs) In this scenario you have presented.
1: So uh, um, Americans, (laughs) you can spend $1 and perhaps win $1.3 billion, or you can spend $150 and give $1.3 billion to some plutocrat. But no, we're here to talk about uh, Glass-Steagall which was like, woo! Glass Steagall to me was one of the seminal prog rock bands of the nineteen seventies.
11: <laughs> I think uh, they go back even further.
1: They, yeah, I mean, they they were a skiffle band at one point. <laughs> you know, they 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 tried the they tried that path. There's some um,
11: flappers that got together, maybe. Yeah, and... yeah,
1: um, but but. Glass Steagall, we're all we're all talking about Glass Steagall these days, mainly because it's become such an issue in the democratic race. Should it be restored or should it remain shattered and some I don't know, cordon made of foam rubber put in place?
11: <laughs> yeah, it's it's been interesting to see this all play out. I don't know if, if you've been as entertained by it as I have, Zach, but I, I feel like it's pretty rare that we hear such wonky things being talked about in the election. So I'm pretty excited about it. But just in case folks aren't familiar, um, Glass-Steagall is a Depression-era law. It was passed after the big crash of 1929 when a bunch of bankers were basically pushing people into products that they knew were crappy. Um, They were making money off of it. So that's why they were pushing everyone into these crappy products. They had a really bad conflict of interest. If this sounds familiar and sounds like I might be talking about the 2008 financial crisis, it was very similar. It just wasn't mortgage products. It happened to be mostly stocks. Um, so, in response to that big financial crisis, they said, okay, let's separate the more boring banking, your savings account, your mortgage from the more casino style uh, gambling. Um, you could call it the powerball of Wall Street, perhaps, but um, the house always wins. Um, so that's what happened in the 1930s, and now there's this whole question and debate, right? Is the reason that we had such a uh, terrible financial crisis in 2008 because we didn't have Glass-Steagall in and, place? And
1: just to be just to be like clear. Uh, I never get the law wrong, right, but uh, the it was 1999, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act.
11: So that came later. Okay. 1999 was called graham leach bliley That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it actually was sort of like a death by a thousand cuts, and Glass-Steagall had sort of been weakened and weakened and weakened by a particular regulator called the the OCC for short, Um, and Graham Leach-Bliley in 1999 was like the final nail in the coffin.
1: And Byron Dorgan at the time, Senator Byron Dorgan at the time, said, we'll all come to regret this in a decade. And he was off by one year. Sorry, Byron. (laughs) You lose. Sorry.
7: What's amazing, amazing, guys, if you don't mind me jumping in here, uh, is is the way that this has become uh, sort of an odd political football in the the Democratic Party primary, because it's been kind of accepted, I think, by bank reform dorks for a long time, at least bank reform dorks who aren't, like, professional, like, economic advisors to the Clinton administration, which signed off on this, this repeal in 1999. And this, this was a contributing factor to the crisis. I mean, the bank that lobbied in favor of this bill was called Citibank, and they wanted, they wanted the bill to pass so that they could acquire. It was sort of like the last of the 1,000 cuts that needed to be uh, executed so that they could acquire a giant company, and the resulting company was called Citibank, which turned into not only the, one of the biggest disasters of the, of the financial crisis, but also a landing house for a lot of people from the Clinton administration who had supported the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Also, people like Robert Rubin, who was the Treasury Secretary for Bill Clinton, ended up working, making millions of dollars before the crisis. Um, so it, it, was, it was very central, I think, in people's, idea, in people's minds that this, this, this bill sort of led the way to a bunch of mega-mergers um, that, that made things worse. But you've seen uh, particular criticisms from people now saying, well, actually, it didn't have that much to do with, with the core elements of the crisis. And Alexis, I guess I, I want to know, I want to pick your brain on that. I mean, do you think that's a fair, a fair critique? Like, did, did this, you know, it, did we just sort of associate Citigroup as a failing bank with this, uh, with this law and, and mistakenly, you know, miss the, the point of the, uh, of the policy?
11: I mean, I I don't think so. I think that the fact that there was no Glass-Steagall in place is a really important reason why the crisis was so uh, terrible. But just to go back to your point about Citigroup, So Citigroup was the bank that got the most government assistance in the wake of the crisis. They got half a trillion dollars almost if you add it all up. So not just the TARP bailout, but also all of these, like, guarantees and cheap loans and essentially free money. Like, you give me a pile of garbage, I'll give you back treasury bills. Like, it was a pretty good deal. Um, And the other thing is, even though we hear some people saying, oh, no, no, Glass-Steagall wasn't important, the two biggest beneficiaries of Glass being overturned was the executives at Citigroup, then Citigroup, a guy named Sandy Weil and a guy named John Reed. You know, one of them was at Travelers. One of them was at Citibank. And both of them have since said, you know what, we shouldn't have— repeal Glass-Steagall. So, you know, and you may question their authenticity. Maybe they're just trying to write a book later. Like, who knows what their motivation is? But I'll never forget, I don't know if you watched it, Zach or Jason, but when um, when Sandy Weil was on CNBC I with, with Andrew Ross Sorkin, right, and he says, oh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Andrew Ross Sorkin, like, does not know what to do. Like, his like That's... jaw drops. He's, like, flabbergasted. He's like, wait, is did you just say what I think you said? And He's like, yeah. But it just in terms of, like, So forget about whether or not the bankers who benefited from this think it was a bad idea. I think that a lot of people like to say that Glass-Steagall wasn't important because two of the big um, firms that failed, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, were investment banks. And so who cares because they weren't this mega bank merger. But what I like to push back and say is Lehman didn't cause the crisis, right? First of all, Bear failed and J.P. Morgan bought them and, like, we didn't have this catastrophic thing happen. J.P. Morgan got this great price for it. It's really kind of criminal how little they paid for it. And then Lehman Falls is allowed to fail, right? And Lehman is the canary in the coal mine, right? The crisis wasn't horrible because Lehman failed and caused this big cascading effect. The crisis was horrible because Lehman had the same terrible garbage, uh, you know, subprime mortgage positions that everybody else had. So the failure of Lehman basically showed how worthless those products were. And then all of these giant banks that were the byproduct of the repeal of Glass-Steagall, like Citigroup, you know, like Bank of America, had the same terrible positions. And so everyone was like, oh, you know, like yeah. we're no, in serious trouble. Fuck. Like everyone's like, Oh fuck, we're in huge trouble. <laughs> um and then I guess the one other thing I'll point I'll make is People also like to say, like, oh, AIG, they were this, you know, kind of insurance company. Like, they weren't a byproduct of Glass-Steagall, but they actually were, because the reason AIG had such bad regulation was because they bought this small bank, technically a a bank thrift, and when they did that, they got to shop around for the weakest regulator, and they picked this regulator, OTS, that was so bad that Dodd-Frank did away with it. It doesn't even exist anymore. So AIG is also a byproduct of the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and I don't think anyone would say that AIG wasn't a really big part of the crisis.
7: I mean, I mean, this is one of the things. Like, like, I think people who say that it had nothing to do with the crisis are focusing on a very narrow, particular kind of complexity that that Glass-Steagall would have ad- directly addressed, and ignoring a lot of other types of complexities that, that repealing Glass-Steagall injected in, into the financial system. And you know, w- whether it's making co- companies larger and more complex by just allowing new types of mergers. Or, as, as Alexis was just saying, allowing, allowing insurance companies to shop around for bank regulators. Uh, I mean, these, these are things that, uh, that I, don't, I don't think people necessarily anticipated when the, when the law was repealed, but there were a lot of people at the time, well, no, no, not a lot, but there were a handful of people in the Senate who didn't support this. Uh, so it, it's not as if it was completely unforeseeable.
11: Well, and I also think there's just kind of like a common sense thing that makes sense about like if we allow banks to merge and grow and have like 10,000 different things that they do, like that's probably not a great idea, right? Because that's where all our money is. Like, do we really want the one thing that we all depend on to go to the ATM and get our money out to also be doing 10,000 other things that are really complicated and risky? Like it just kind of makes some basic sense. But then also when you allow investment banking and the boring banking to be together, you don't get... Like, I think government regulation is important, but there's also a role for, like, sort of market competition to play. So if, if they're separated, then you have different interests. And I used to work at Morgan Stanley, which at the time was an investment bank before the crisis, and they would talk about, we don't advertise, we don't need to advertise, you know, we only work with really, really wealthy people in and institutions, we're a white-shoe, you know, investment bank. And they thought that, like, the more boring banking people, the Bank of America, were, like, stupid mouth. Breathers, And so, like, I was at Merrill when it got bought by Bank of America, and that was a forced marriage, right? right? That was not a happy marriage. Those two entities want to get a divorce. They've always wanted to get a divorce, right? Like, they're just two different types. But if you force the separation, then they have different interests and they can lobby for different things in Congress, right? Because Goldman wants to— you know, used to want to screw over the big, boring banks, and now they're all, like, working in lockstep. And so you have this sort of concentrated money that's all pushing in the same direction, and so it becomes really hard um, to push back.
7: Well, so, Alexis, this has become a thing in, in, the, in the primary, and I know you can't comment on, you know, campaigns specifically, but um, there, there are disputes, policy disputes, over, uh, over whether or not reinstating some version of Glass-Steagall would make sense, would, would, would make things better. I mean, I think wh- however you feel about Glass-Steagall and the 2008 crash, um, there are people who say, well, look, you, you should. I mean, the Clinton campaign, for instance, says, well, look, if you just regulate shadow banking generally, shadow banking being sort of a vague term for anything that's not like a commercial loan issued by a bank in 1933. Um, if, if you don't, if you regulate these things across the system, then you don't need divisions like Glass Seagull.
1: All right, well, um, Powerball winner out there. <laughs> you're going to get $1.3 billion. The guys who got $4.7 trillion laugh at you. Thank you, Alexis, for being with us.
11: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you, Zach, for coming to us while you're sick. I blow my nose at you. We will be <laughs> right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We were always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, Alexis Goldstein of Americans for Financial Reform, and Huffington Post reporters Deep Breath, Igor Bobic, Zach Carter, Arthur Delady, Marina Fang, Samantha Lockman, Sam Stein, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash sothathappened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. And this week, look for Candidate Confessional, a podcast about losing wherever podcasts are distributed. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to sothathappened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.